Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I'm one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Matt, aka Null. Hey. Reed, aka Sick Robot. How you doing? And Morgan, aka Spleenface. What's up, everybody? And in this episode, we're going to be covering. Uh, it's a variety pack, actually. We're going to be covering a couple things. <laughs> uh, so well, a bit this of an week, climax, but yeah, uh, this week, uh, Morgan and myself uh, each brought a mini topic, and then uh, in our next variety pack, Matt and Reed are going to be picking a topic, uh, a mini topic each. Um, yeah. But before we get into that, what have you guys been up to since the last episode? Uh, I've played, played, I played Magic in a while. I was like, but, you know, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually been playing a lot more uh, games. Uh, I know. That's I, uh, incredible to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, normally, I, I've been on a, a bit of a CDH hiatus for a bit, but um, got back into it to test a, a new deck that I've been working on. When I do work on decks, and this is something like... Uh, Listeners, some listeners mentioned me about the uh, like the Golos uh, deck, and I said I'll, I'll post the list when I have like a primer for it. I, I take forever to get like decks and stuff done, so like you know, be warned. But right now I'm testing a uh, brawl list, a version of brawl that I've been working on for a while in the background, um, and it's going far, uh, going uh, well so far. I'm having a lot of fun with it, um, winning. Uh, Nobody else is having fun. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the nature of brawl. But uh, yeah, uh, honestly, honestly, uh, and and looking at Strixhaven and some of these new cards gets me even more excited to be playing brawl. Yeah. Um, Did, yeah you'll I'm, you'll know I'm the deck fun. is good when you go to uh, the not so humble brags channel and you see a bunch of time spell remastered foils from Linden. The deck is good. <laughs> I did already order my time for oh master foil. God. Oh no! <laughs> oh my God. Sorry to, to spoil it, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, that's it for me, Matt Morgan. Uh, I moved. I've just been. Yeah, I don't know. That is true. You yeah, You're, uh, you. Some might say you've moved up in the world. Yeah, I I have gone up. Uh, was it eight stories? So nice. currently at the height, but then uh, then I look outside and, and I'm like halfway up on another building that's like clearly <laughs> taller than this one. <laughs> that's you know that's just gonna be your driving motivation. Just as as long as there's any building that yeah. you can see that you're not taller than. I mean, you just gotta keep going couldn't up. You, couldn't you see the CN Tower? Yeah, you can. <laughs> I can. I can I, still I see the CN. Well, I don't know what a story technically counts. We'll go flights. There's only one meaningful story. Can you guys? Yeah. Can you still see the the depressed faces of the people on the gardener uh, from, <laughs> from your window? I can, but also, better yet, I can't hear them. Nice. I don't know what nice. changed, <laughs> but I can't hear them, and that is definitely what was intended. So, happy about that. And Morgan, anything from you? Or are we gonna wait until uh, new developments to discuss that? Yeah, okay, okay. Um, okay then, without further ado, let's jump into housekeeping. Uh, and as always in housekeeping, we like to give a shout out to our new patrons. So, big shout outs to Jesse B. Andrew C. Mads B, especially from Tier 1 Con fame, thank you. And Kevin S. You rock. Rock. 
Yeah, I like to throw in the, the y'all, you know? Y'all yeah. are great. Yeah. Yeah. Shake it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you so much, guys. We really live You're, on uh, the edge here at Into the North. <laughs> you guys really, really uh, help, help support the show, as we mention every week or every episode, not every week. Uh, every episode in our uh, closing remarks, uh, it really helps us a lot. Um, and also, thanks to Mads B for basically forcing me into playing the tier one con. <laughs> um, Press-ganging so you. That segues us into new developments. Um, so a couple things. The final tier one con tournament, online. which has been a... Online a, event. Yeah, yeah. a, a multi-part um, series of, of online webcam tournaments. The final one of the, of, uh, the tournaments are, is going to be happening in April, I think April 27th? April 24th. 4th? Okay, I thought cool. it was 6th. Okay, we were all wrong. There. It's, it's somewhere around there, okay? <laughs> okay? We were all wrong. That's a... <laughs> Definitely yeah, 20, April 27th is a Tuesday. Hey, yeah. we all share responsibility for being incorrect here in this house. Um... Yeah, it's not so in the notes, and when I, we said it before, I said April twenty fourth. <laughs> no, catch, catch me at that at that uh, at the final tier one con. Maybe I'll be playing my uh, new Baral deck and uh, losing horribly. Oh God, actually. And there, you know what? Spoiler: <laughs> we there might there's a very real chance that we might have the entire end of the North crew there. So yeah, keep your eye out. Doctor's Ooh. orders. Hot. Full. Um, Say it full into the North Finals. Let's go. Oh, <laughs> if you guys Did don't you make imagine? it to the finals, I'm disappointed. We have no, to, the, if the can... thing is, is if we if if, no, 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 if no, it becomes we're... if it becomes three into the North people in the finals versus someone else, it's going to be a repeat of the Canadian Commander Championships. Oh yeah, we're, <laughs> where... we're, we're screwed. There's no way. You know, <laughs> if there's three of us and one of somebody else, we might as well just concede. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So Mads, if you're listening to this, uh, this is your cue that if we all enter. Um, and we all get into the semis, you have to put us in different pods. <laughs> yeah, true, true. One of, one of us has to get auto-pass to finals and the other three play in the semis. Um, and speaking of tournaments, only the biggest CDH tournament in the history of CDH tournaments happened this past weekend. Uh, and that would yeah. be Marchesa... Is it just called the Marchesa tournament or like Marchesa 2? Or... It was Marchesa 2021. Okay. Occasionally referred to as Marchesa 2. There was a Marchesa last year. Um, but yeah, this one uh, was a big charity tournament. They raised, I think, almost $2,000 for uh, Gamers Helping Gamers, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, that's dope. And uh, there were 170-something people who showed up. Holy and moly. Uh, we crashed Cockatrice only three times. And uh, your boy came out on top. Um. And uh, just out of curiosity, uh, Morgan, what what deck did you play? Uh, I played Razakats. And did you did you get any other tournament finishes playing Razakats? By the way. Uh yeah, back in January. Was either January or early. Was that the first tier one con? Did we already discuss yeah, the that? First tier one con. Yes, we I think did. we did. Okay, yeah. Well, anyway. Just wanted to, to reinforce that in our year in <laughs> review episode, I'm pretty sure everyone on the cast said that uh, rule of laws and, and Razakats, that kind of like strategy is the best thing going to the meta right now. And Morgan is out here proving us right. So yeah, so I'm gonna take at least partial credit for all of your at least oh, yeah. at least ninety percent of Morgan's <laughs> accomplishment. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's every time it's a massive team effort because like. 
I, I can't pull this off without just Reed salt to feed off, you know? It's like... <laughs> oh, yeah, Reed, you did your right. Marchesa as well, didn't I you? I did, yeah. <laughs> and also, out of the 170 people playing, I think I had the fifth worst breakers in the entire tournament going into... <laughs> like yeah, trying Yikes. to get into semis, and I was tied with everybody up to ninth, I think. <laughs> and he came the brutal. To be fair, I came to get into top thirteen. Yeah. yeah, I was fifteenth, tied with yeah. I think everybody up to ninth to get into top thirteen with the fifth worst breakers in the tournament, or in like it was at least bottom ten breakers in the tournament. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, my breakers good. were pretty abysmal as well, but. You know, you know, wins. If you don't lose, then your opponents yeah. can't win. So. Not bad. <laughs> awesome. It was definitely it was definitely an experience watching myself go slide from like eighth to fifteenth over the course of the day. <laughs> but it was an even better experience listening to Reed slide from. <laughs> oh yeah, no, hundred percent. So the, the highlight the <laughs> highlight of that tournament for me was watching one of the games that could have kicked me out of. Uh, top 13 um, be decided by the person that I needed to not win cast a divergent transformations and then the other person casting a chaos warp not targeting one of the divergent transformations targets <laughs> yeah he targeted something off the Elsha players board to try and flip the Elsha into interaction for the divergent transformations Ooh. You know, that sounds like a, a kind of mistake that could happen if you were, you know, overly tired or something. Or, you know, if you really want help on how to do well in tournaments, be sure to check back in our previous episode where yeah. we, uh, that being we said, about, I, uh, tournaments. I personally think tournament fatigue um, in CDH is sort of bullshit. Wait, <laughs> Quite really? honestly. Yeah. Why? Uh, I just don't, I just don't think it's a thing. Honestly, I don't think playing magic for you don't think playing magic for extended periods. You're just you're just a times ten CDH player, okay? I guess I don't know. I I find my I find myself typically getting sharper over a day worth of play. Like I I tend to start out a day attorney day rusty and then oh oh that's true. It's because you start out rusty and then the 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 stimulants kick in, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's certainly there's certainly honestly they should be drug checking CDH tournaments. Yeah, but the PD cocktail really starts to kick in around round three usually. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like a little bit of like your first game, you're you know, especially if you start early, you're like just kind of getting into getting into it. But but certainly like when you play for you know ten plus hours, there's certainly a fatigue effect. I mean, if you're playing continuously, sure. I th like, I think if you were playing for Marchesa and played every single possible time that you could queue up all the way into semis plus finals, like, I could see that having an effect. But the fact that you can take breaks during Marchesa, especially with the fluid round structure, and I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> maybe it's also that I just find that a lot of decks tend to be pretty linear now, which doesn't really lend itself to fatigue that well. Yeah, it definitely, yeah, certainly, like, some matches and some games contribute a lot more to fatigue than others. And, like, yeah. you could you could play, like, a five-round tournament and not really experience fatigue if you just had, like, several, like, quick, simple games and then, like, a decently long break between each of them. Then, yeah, like, yeah. I wouldn't, lots of people wouldn't be particularly fatigued by that. But, like, when you yeah. play multiple, you know, hour-plus games, like... Like, I don't know, in, in the the second tier one con, I remember my semi-final game, um, 
like it took like almost two hours, right? And and then it's like, you know, and then you're thrown into the final game, and like the other two finalists who had to play semifinals have have been done for like half an hour plus, and like the the person who finished first has literally just been like chilling for two hours, and then it's like and go again, and uh, <laughs> like there's fatigue over ten hours of play. Yeah, I mean, also I mean, those yeah. tournaments, like, you getting up at like six in the morning, that doesn't help. But no, yeah, I, 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 I accuse Reed of just talking shit over here. You know, I, I don't. I, no, no, okay, no, no, I, okay, no, no. <laughs> it would be talk. It would be talking shit if Morgan didn't win the tournament. <laughs> but since he did, it's not really talking shit. It's just an observation. I think. It's, okay, I'd say especially. I think the tournament fatigue is less of a conversation compared to like normal like GP play. Okay. Yeah. I like don't playing like if you're if you're going to like turn two or like day two a GP like I feel like it the like I feel like the tournament fatigue sets in a lot harder over um, I think it kind of like just boils down to the end of the of day IRL play plus like a second day with like when you well sure around. yeah it, obviously it really just boils down right? to the amount of magic hours you have to put in and decision yeah, well, making but, and but how that, tough the deck is like that's why i was saying like for cdh i think that tournament fatigue is just like a lot less of a factor than it is and well but i, I think what you're talking like, about like gp finals or something i mean but i think that if you played like a full two-day cdh tournament especially if you had a lot of like hotly contested or like complex matches i think that the fatigue would certainly well, Which anyway, okay. on to our <laughs> many topics for the show. You know, wait, wait, also... <laughs> debating debating whether or not tournament fatigue is real is surprisingly not actually missed, one of our, our many you topics. You missed a new development, though. Did I miss a new development? Yeah, the, the previous tier one gone. Oh, <laughs> true. Yeah, I thought yeah, I mentioned that because like you, you, we talked about the one in, in, uh, in January, but there's been a few. That's right. Yeah. Morgan, go ahead. Talk about... Uh... So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I got each of my podcast co-hosts to, uh, you know, tell me how much they really hated me and come up with a, a restriction for me to brew around and then posted that and let people vote. And you all voted that I had to build around a companion that wasn't Gigantha, uh, which was rough. And so I played a Tazri Beacon of Unity and Zerda the Dawn Waker, and uh, nice came second. That sounds fun. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Zerda sounds fun until you start listing all the cards you can't play, and you're just like, oh right, all the good enchantments. Dude, all companions uh, sound fun until you realize you have to pay three to put them in your hand. Yeah. yeah, that was I mean, dude, what like, a the rough... Monolith, the whole monolith <laughs> combo thing is a lot worse when it costs, like, six to get Zerda yeah. to play rather than, you know, three. Yeah. Well, I guess this is the uh, Congratulations Morgan segment. Um, yeah. Congratulations That's Morgan. That's my favorite segment. It's been, <laughs> happening. it's been happening a lot recently, you know? Uh, I try not to. I'm not. I try not to give Morgan too much congratulations. You know, I'm sure he gets enough of an ego boost from everyone else in the community. You know, we, someone. It's his job. Job of his friends to knock him down a peg, right? That's. I feel uh, like it's the you know the scene from um, from Rick and Morty. Like yes, Jerry Smith. Yes, like just shaking his own hand, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wearing a shirt with his face on it. Yeah. Um, yeah so on to the mini topics. Uh, Morgan, your mini topic is first, and that is 
mana sequencing slash mana overloading. Do you want to give us a brief kind of introduction on the idea behind this mini topic? Yes. So I think there's a lot of discussion on like how to build a mana base, you know, which lands you should be playing. Um, But I think that what often gets looked over is then like how to actually play with the mana base that you have in a game. Um, Primarily that has to do with fetch targets, but it can also just be like how you sequence which lands you're playing. Um, And I think that there's some heuristics that people have like a very good grasp on. Like, you know, I want to be able to access all of my colors is like a very obvious thing. Um, And like, you know, generally people try not to keep hands where they can't generate one of the colors of of their deck um and you know you go like oh i want i want as much blue as possible so i can represent multiple pieces of interaction or whatever um but i think that particularly in like the first three turns people often do um they often like pick lands that if you actually think about how the cards in your deck and how you're likely to want to play them um maybe aren't the best so i guess Uh, We'll start with mana overloading. And essentially, what that is, is when you have a land that taps... Like, I'm assuming we're talking about lands that tap for two colors here, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, If you had a full mana base of five... Or, like, a handful of five-color lands, none of this really applies. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. But but assuming your lands tap for two mana, you need to think about, like, which colors you want to be generating when. So, as as an obvious example, um, green. Cards that cost green... A lot of them are permanents, and a lot of them can only be cast during your main phase. So, like, you know, if you're playing, like, a bunch of mana dorks, and you have, you know, Sylvan Library and Survival of the Fittest, like, yeah, you have, you know, Veil of Summer, Nature's Claim, um, maybe Worldly Tutor. Um, but but generally, a lot of the green pips in your deck, you're only going to be able to use them at sorcery speed. Whereas something like blue, you know, you have, like, all your counter spells. Yes, there's, like, Rhystic Study and Remora and Hullbreacher, but um, a lot of your blue pips are going to be instants. If you fetch Tropical Island, uh, which is a land that I see a lot of people fetch first, particularly in four-color decks. Like, they just, they fetch the Tropical Island because you're like, I want blue, um, but I want to play this Mana Dork. But what that means is that, like, on a later turn... If you want to cast something else that costs green, maybe it's Thrasios, or maybe it's, uh, like, just another Dork, or your Sylvan Library, or whatever, it means you have to tap your blue land in your main phase. Which is generally not what you want to be doing. Whereas if you'd fetched, say, like, Bayou, you could tap your Bayou and, and something else and cast Sylvan Library, and then hold up the Volcanic Island... And, you know, that represents, like, that represents Red Elemental Blast and Pyroblast, if you're playing those, um, plus all of your one-mana blue spells. Um, and so, essentially, you just want to be considering which colors you're going to be using when, and then kind of putting colors that you're going to be using at the same time on the same land. So, you know, as an example, if blue and red are... Or I'll, I'll go back to uh, Sans Red, because I think it's like more defined this way. Um, if blue and white are the cards that you're generally going to be using at instant speed, and green and black are the things you're going to be playing at sorcery speed, then like Bayou Tundra is a split that makes a lot of sense, because 
whether you're casting a blue or a black spell, you still get to hold up. Or sorry, whether you're casting a green or a black spell, you still get to hold up your blue and white for your instant speed interaction. Um, so one thing you kind of brought up about um, like not getting Tropical Island because you, you want to split up the mana you're going to tap or whatever. One thing one thing that I also do kind of want to uh, consider or get your take on is getting getting Trop um, to play something like a Dork because a lot of time that's what your turn one play is if you're playing green, right? Um, and not all, it's not always going to be a... Uh, know a birds of paradise or noble hierarch um you know a lot of decks still do run you know your your three basic green dorks so if if you are playing one of those you know does that factor into whether or not misty is is worth getting um because you can then use your your dork as the source of your um you know sorcery speed tapping mana for for those kinds of plays so yeah it does and obviously i'm I'm not saying, like, never fetch Tropical Island or, like, you shouldn't even have Tropical Island in your deck considering, like, a lot of <laughs> decks that are both blue and green. You <laughs> probably should. Breeding Pool. <laughs> breeding Pool is probably less common than Watery Grave, but more common than anything else. Yeah. Um, In, like, in, in decks that... I mean, maybe, I guess, Steam Vents. Um, so, yes, like, obviously, there are lots of hands where it'll work out fine. You know, you play you're using your green land to get more green mana and then it doesn't matter as much, but I still think generally um, it like if you can avoid it, right? If you're, if you're looking at a hand with two fetch lands, um, it might make sense to go for something like a Bayou, um, especially if well, we can talk about this more when we talk about like being able to cast your two color cards conveniently. Um, but you know, especially if, um, buy you like you're overloading um, you have a bunch of two color cards that you know want green and black which obviously there are a couple that are staples at least a couple um, yeah at least a couple that are staples where um, like then you have that extra green source so it's not as much of an issue um, so yeah like all of these things again I, i'm i'm not saying never fetch tropical island but i'm saying that like as a default like i'm not really going to think about how this hand's playing out or like a heuristic i think people default to trop and i think that that's often wrong yeah um, I definitely especially because you're not holding up blue mana on turn one anyways so and if you're playing your second land on turn two like it doesn't really matter which of your land drops makes the blue mana also coincidentally if you're on a deck that is both on tropical island and timna Tropical Island is really bad as a turn one if you're trying to cast Timna at some point in the future. Unless your dork is Bop, Pilgrim, or uh, yeah. Yeah. Hierarchy. Yeah, so that's, that's I think, the second part of this, is yeah. that um, you do really want to be careful when you're playing multicolored cards um, that you can actually cast a lot of them recently, or, like, reasonably. And, like, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to make a choice because you can't fetch lands that let you cast... Like, assuming you just have two lands and four colors, you can't cast every two-color combination spell by just fetching two lands. Like, obviously, it, it's I mean, literally hey, impossible. Triumphs are pretty great, but they don't do that much work. <laughs> sure, but yeah, two two two-color two yeah. lands and four colors, there's going to be two color combinations that you can't cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, not being able to cast green-white spells is typically not a huge issue. But uh, it is something that exactly comes up. Exactly, Ladamri's call. Yeah. Um, 
Blue-Black is usually Limdul's vault. The occasional deck runs Drown in the Lock. Um, Which is sort of, black, I think, coincidentally, in, in, that, in that case also, that's actually sort of why uh, UC is a great turn one fetch if you don't have immediate torque requirements as well, just because there's so few blue-black cards typically that you want to be like holding up specifically um drown lock doesn't see a whole lot of play and limdul's vault is like like yeah it's something you want to hold up but you can also like afford to cast in your upkeep and such um which means that like being able to centralize your blue and black mana on one land um is pretty convenient which is sort of why you see a lot of it fetched early anyway continue so i just wanted to insert that no, yeah, no, i was gonna I mean, say drown the lock should see i think i think that card is maybe seeing yeah. too little play right now especially with all the creatures running about that are and like obviously I, you know i'm using these as examples of yeah, yeah, like, yeah. if you're playing 100%. a bunch of blue black spells then sure yeah, yeah i mean if you're, if you're if you're <laughs> like counter squall and whatever yeah great um <laughs> oh and notion thief don't forget notion thief assuming you don't have like soul ring or mana crypt typically you're not casting notion thief until you sort of have more sources of yeah these colors anyways like if you fetch an underground sea (laughs) if you fetch an underground sea you're probably not like casting notion thief with (laughs) only like you have you somehow found like three lands for the crypt or whatever then it's just like yeah (laughs) i mean sure that's like a that's a possibility yeah but it's like it's, it's fairly narrow compared to yeah yeah but you know to reed's point about uh tim now i think that's like a really big like in Thress, use Timna specifically. Yeah. Um, the Trop Scrubland split is like a is honestly probably the worst because it doesn't let you cast. Like yes, you can cast Thrasios if you're playing a, a Dork turn one, um, but it doesn't let you cast Timna on turn two, which is like the way it's it's obviously just the more mana efficient play generally, but yep. it's also like it, it's a it's very meaningful on turn three being able to like cast thrasios attack with timna and hold up two mana and also or... on on the um on the trop scrub split if you're casting thrasios on turn so in any other split where like theoretically you can cast a timna on turn three uh thrasios turn two is actually still a fine play if you're being defensive and want to hold up mana for interaction the issue is that on a trop scrub split you're holding up scrub for interaction you're holding which up is scrub which is representing like basically nothing you're representing like a silence which STP is just like the worst yeah. thing to be <laughs> representing yeah. yeah um so so yeah that's that's a that's a really good point um just about like which you know again that comes back to like which manage you want to be tapping which manage you want to be holding up um and then and then yeah so so like if you fetch for example like if you do a bayou tundra split um yes that that has the potential to make casting like decay and trophy a little bit awkward but it also like if you're casting a green dork, then that that already makes it less awkward. Yeah. Um, Tundra. I mean, there's Dovin's veto, but apart from that, not really a and lot of. Let's be honest. Who plays Dovin's veto anymore? Just uh, <laughs> deflecting swatch just mean, killed all hope of that card being good. <laughs> um. Yeah. So like that's potentially not a bad split. Underground Sea. You know. Yes. There's the Vault and Notion Thief. Um. But like Savannah's also not a, not. Like, it's not a huge issue fetching Savannah, yeah. although um, often in the later stages of the game, Savannah... It becomes very awkward, but... <laughs> ...be a little bit of a colorless land, <laughs> um, which is, you know, when you're, when you're like, 
trying to cast your sort of bigger, more impactful spells, your tutors, your your consults, and your interaction. Um, having a land that taps for like neither of the more useful colors, yeah, uh, is not is not Savannah, the best. Savannah um, definitely doesn't tap for Oracle Consult. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and like, yeah, these are these are again not hard and fast rules, um, and. You know, because if they were, then these would be cards you would be taking out of your deck. And obviously they're not. Um, But just, like, things to consider rather than sort of... I think people have a tendency to um, consider, as I said, like, they're like, I want to be able to access all of my colors. Um, And then they just kind of autopilot from there. Yeah. Um, Or not even even that. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people even before getting to the first heuristic of wanting to have all the colors, we'll just autopilot and fetch, like... I've seen a lot of people just go, like, uh, fetch UC, fetch Valk. Oh, I can't cast any of these white spells. Um, oops. So just, yeah. like, or, or like, yeah. Or, like, b- have, like, the the understanding that, like, I want to have as much blue mana as possible, and also I want to cast a green spell here, so, like, I'm just fetching Trop. Yeah. Um... And, and obviously another part of this is considering what your fetch lands find. Um, especially when you have an off-color fetch land. Um, then it's, like, important to use that to find. Yeah. You know, like, you have your wooded foothills. You're like, okay, you know, if I fetch Trop with my Polluted Delta, then, like, I'm, I'm locked into fetching myself double you. green, <laughs> and I won't have one of white or, or black. Um, so... So definitely, like, make sure that you're taking advantage of the restrictions uh, on your fetches. And also, like, trying to keep yourself as flexible as possible um, should your, like, plans or, or what you need change. Yeah. Um, Actually... So that means, like, holding... That means, like, not burning something like a polluted delta yes. as your first fetch if you have, if you have say, even, like, windswept heat. Sort of on the topic of fetches as well, though, um, there's actually been a fair amount of... Um, depth added to the uh, turn one and two decisions of playing. Say you have an opening hand with like a command tower and a fetch land in your opener. Um, there's actually a fair amount of depth now, um, basically because opposition agent exists of whether or not you play the fetch land first or the five color or like non fetch land first. Um, and there's actually a fair amount of decision making to be done um, on like that exact decision. Um, like, even on your first and second turn, where uh, if you're expecting an op agent earlier rather than later or um, anything of that sort, you, like, sort of want to get your fetches out of the way first. Especially, say, if you have, like, two fetches in a five-color land, you probably want to get one of them out of the way first. But it might also be, if you use all of your fetches up, you might not have a shuffle for a potential brainstorm draw. And then there's also the potential for if you don't start with the five-color land and then you draw another five-color land and, like, suddenly like, a couple draws down the line, your hand's full of, like, really color-intensive things that you can no longer cast because one of your lands isn't a five-color land when it could have been. Um, that's sort of a reason why you would want to play your rainbow lands first. So, it's, like, sort of just, like, considering, like, not just uh, which fetch is going to get what, but, like, which fetch you're going to play first and then also, like, if you're going to play a fetch first. Um, and just, like, thing. trying to make those decisions. Yeah. I think I think Which one thing that used win. to be the case is that yeah, play your your five color lands first, and or at least this used to be the um, trend that I saw a lot. You know, play your five color lands first, save the fetches, um, 
you know, for the ponders, brainstorms. Um, and also it kind of allowed you to defer your, your decision on what to get uh, yeah. until time being. And it ended up being that it didn't, you end up usually be pretty, pretty fine with this mana um, because you, you're making the decision later and you're getting exactly what you needed. Uh, and I think as you pointed out with opposition agent being a huge consideration, the, the trend to use your fetches early, I think is important, which lends to kind of Morgan's point about really considering what you're getting and, and the importance of uh, these, this kind of planning ahead idea. Uh, something that wasn't necessarily important before because uh, you didn't have the opposition agents running around, but now is, is more important than ever. Uh, another thing as well, um, you know, you, you pointed out whatever Savannah doesn't cast Oracle Consult. Um, you know, looking at planning ahead, having making sure that you're um, accounting for how much mana and interaction you're going to be able to hold up based off your lands. Like if you're, if you get, you know, um, Underground Sea and then, you know, Watery Grave and then you, you've got like, you know, you're, you're getting Savannah or something like your, your mana is, is kind of, your blue mana is tied to your black mana. So if you had split up the, the one of your, um, you know, you, let's say you get a UC, and, but if you split up your Watery Grave uh, between a Bayou and a Tundra, right? You're still, you're still helping fix your colors, but this way you're, you're actually spreading out your blue and black mana so that you're not, um, simultaneously tapping out of a blue and black source when trying to cast Thoracle Consult, and you can still ideally use your blue mana to protect your combo. Yeah, I think, I think that, like, you know, bringing up Op Agent is also, you know, another thing you should be considering is, like, what happens, not so much if this one gets op-agented, but if the next one gets op-agented. Um, you know, if you fetch a Savannah turn one, and then play your dork, and then turn two, your land gets op-agented. Uh, you're probably going to be having a bad time. I'm that, assuming you, so like, you're not playing a Selesny deck. I guess in which case you're already having a bad time, so whatever. Yeah, but. yeah there, there is no situation in which you're not having a bad time. Either you're not in four colors yeah. and two of your colors are green and white, so you're having a bad time. Or you're locked out of two of your colors, in which case you're also having a bad time. Cool, cool. I think, uh, I think that about wraps it up for this uh, mini topic, and then we can move on to mine. <laughs> yeah, so we could spend more time on your topic. <laughs> and uh, you before we, we jump into my topic, um, Matt had to uh, had to depart for personal reasons, so uh, we will be carrying on the rest of the show without him, and we will be hearing back from him next time. Yes. Anyway, without further ado, you may not seem it may not seem particularly different because he's normally so quiet, but this time he's actually not here. <laughs> yep, you're just missing something. So my mini topic is pseudo stacks. Um, and this is a term that I use. It's not really, I don't, I mean, maybe other people use it, but this is kind of the, the terminology I've been using. And I, I got into a discussion about it recently on the, uh, on the GitRog server. And I thought it'd be an interesting topic to discuss with you guys. And I guess it's kind of give some framing for it. You know, st stacks, we've, we've done an episode on stacks. Um, Rule of law, it's like a static effect, you know, affects everyone. Stacks doesn't have to be completely symmetrical. It can be asymmetrical, um, like opposition agent opponents can't search. Um, but it's generally a static effect that prevents something from happening, you know, generally, okay? Um, Pseudo-stacks falls on more of a spectrum. Um, and 
the analogy or the way the way I kind of define pseudo stacks, um, it's a card that does not fit the mold or of a traditional of a traditional stacks piece either. Like it's not static text on a permanent that prevents something from happening, but the result and impact it has on the game is very similar, if not identical, to a uh, hard stacks piece. Um, it's yeah, the name pseudo stacks. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's 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 a card that yeah doesn't have an effect that says stacks, but its effect on the game is stacks. Yeah. Um. So actually, I think the first card that we should it's, discuss. It's really more. It's rather than your opponents can't. It's your opponents won't. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And, one. Yeah. The, the, so I, I gave I gave in a, a perhaps a grim analogy or whatever uh, previously where uh, in our in our pre-show I was talking with the guys i said imagine there's like some gold bar and people are in line waiting to get it and there's a guard who has a gun with a single bullet in it and if you go up to take the gold bar uh he's gonna shoot you and then you don't get it but the next person in line does and this is supposed to kind of represent uh, a person trying to go for the win in the game right if you have something um and it's maybe my favorite card to champion right now which is ranger captain of eos um it's a one shot. You sacrifice it. It's a silence effect, right? Um, in in my analogy with the gold bar, uh, if each individual in this line is uh, acting in complete self interest, no one wants to get shot by the guard, so no one's gonna take the gold bar. And it's as if the guard has you know a gun full of bullets, uh, so no one's no one's gonna do it, right? It's the same. This one shot effect is enough of a deterrent to stop uh, more than a single person. So that's the kind of Ranger Captain of Eos silence effect. No one is going to try and use their resources to go all in uh, and try and combo into the Ranger Captain. Uh, so then the Ranger Captain persists, and then it's on to the next person's turn. They do the same argument. They make the same argument to themselves. Don't combo. Boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, it's your turn, and you have a silence effect that you can crack, and it's basically like a grand abolisher, right? So that's that's the ideal case for a ranger captain um and that's kind of my the idea between a pseudo stacks like on your opponent's turns it's acting like um a rule of law or silence or something like that um but even though it's uh, only a one shot so we'll, we'll get into discussing other cards that are like ranger captain in a bit but i think um maybe the most iconic pseudo stacks piece uh and it's kind of in a category of its own that we've we've kind of set up is a ristic study um, and Morgan, I know you've talked a fair bit about Ristic Study as a stacks piece, so why don't you or a pseudo stacks piece? <laughs> that's that's because that? it sort of is a stacks piece for a deck that Morgan has historically played. Yeah, yeah. which is like it, it's a, in my view, it's an actual stacks piece against food chain, albeit one that has like a couple, you know, ways you could it theoretically some, it some asterisks, it. yeah. Yeah, like like if you find a silencer, like even if the person's limited on mana, sometimes just um, uncounterability for your spells is good enough. But like as a general rule, um, food chain just can't go off into this. But I think it's more of a pseudo stacks piece for like um, things like ad nauseum and like breach combos. Yeah, where if you have a few mana and someone's like, "Okay, I'm gonna try and win," but they're gonna draw at least ten cards. Um, it's definitely pretty scary because some of those 10 cards are probably interaction. And then if they are and you don't win, 
they have the other eight cards they drew from <laughs> to try to do Study their own win <laughs> to try and win the game or or you, know, you give it to the next more. person yeah. in turn order or you yeah. give it to the yeah like so, so certainly yeah storm combos or like combos that involve casting a lot of spells into Ristic Studies are uh, something that should be approached with caution yeah and, and so we we put it into the pseudo stacks category or uh, mainly because it's optional right and and this is something an argument that people have made against rhystic study for a long time it's like well it's either a one-sided sphere resistance or they draw a card but it's always the one that's worse for you um and i think morgan you made a great point about this other day i don't know if it was like in on discord or or something yeah, about uh like it's yeah, that kind of evaluation or argument doesn't necessarily hold water in four-player free-for-all yeah like in in a 1v1 format um, just like one-sided sphere of resistance would be better than Ristic Study, assuming your opponents are like competent, right? yeah. Because because Ristic Study is essentially a one-sided sphere of resistance Until unless your isn't. opponent is is confident that like by not paying for it, you know they can make the fact that you draw cards not matter. Um, but that's not like in a four-player free-for-all environment, an interaction between two players doesn't have like comparing only two players that comparison doesn't have to be favorable for it to be a good play so um you know if i cast spells and i don't pay for ristic study obviously the ristic study player gets an advantage from them drawing cards but i also get an advantage because i've you know developed faster or done whatever so it's not inherently wrong to like not pay for ristic study in the same way that it is in in like 1v1 because you can you know you give one person there's four of you and you give one person five dollars but you get two dollars like seems like a pretty good deal considering the other two people actually get nothing right <laughs> welcome yeah. to why trade secrets is banned commander <laughs> welcome to why trade secrets is banned yeah exactly um obviously if you take this to like a sufficient extreme then uh yeah, that's you basically start just a Tuesday TDH. on whatever online <laughs> gameplay platform you're on. But uh, or at least that's what Reddit would have you believe. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's <laughs> if you play games online. Oh boy, oh boy, do Ristic studies get fed? But uh, yeah, like it's not it's not inherently wrong to let them draw, or it can be an advantageous play to let them draw the cards in a way that it's like much less likely to be in one. Yeah. One. Yeah. 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 So it's, it is a permanent, uh, continuous effect static ability. Um, but because of the choice aspect, eh, I guess it sort of falls into pseudo stacks. That, uh, in the same vein, is. mystic remora, like, I feel like that's almost more of a hard stacks. Yeah. Well, you're still not paying it's for tough, mystic remora yeah. like ever. Yeah. yeah. I, I will <laughs> no one could <laughs> miss yeah. paying for more is absurd unless it's that, like that has some never ISO happened. rev combo with an absol absolutely absurd amount of mana. In the history of CDH, nobody has ever paid for a fist trigger. No, I, lie, I, I did that in, uh, you say that you have while, while doing shit, while playing Shimmerzer, you would draw enough cards that you're you could lying. develop enough rocks <laughs> to pay for a remora with your ISO rev. Um, but I did actually want to say that like that, Sort of like the difference between, um, like how Rustic Study functions in one v one and in free for all. It's actually sort of like a theme among pseudo stacks because like pseudo stacks doesn't really exist in one v one because it's really just can you play through this effect? 
Yeah. And like, yeah. you're going to force it. You like, eventually you're going to have to force your way through it or you just don't care about it. Um, like with the rage of captain example that you had, it's, there's no hope that it just goes away. Like, if, if your opponent has a ranger captain in 1v1, you just you have to force play, them to crack you, it. You yeah. have to play through the ranger captain. There's no going around it. It's like, yeah. they either crack it, and you have to deal with that fact, or you're playing it a way that it doesn't matter. In free-for-all, for a lot of these effects, there's sort of a hope there that you don't have to deal with it. Somebody else has to deal with it. For, like, almost yeah. any of these. Which is, like, really where, like, sort of part of the pseudo-stacks comes from. I think... One, one, one. The, the let's let's actually talk about the ranger captain kind of category of cards we have here, because the one one thing I really like about this category, and I think they're a, they're a category of cards that are um, perhaps undervalued in CDH because people aren't necessarily um, I don't say properly evaluating, but like they're not considering the full um, the full amount that you can just squeeze out of these cards um, by virtue of just the like you know game theory between you know a four-player free-for-all and, and everyone acting in like, complete self-interest um like the fact that a ranger captain can go a full turn cycle because no one wants to play into it makes it so much better of a card when you're doing the evaluation right like i mean it, comparing ranger captain i think a very comparable card to ranger captain is grand abolisher where um and obviously they're not comparable for different reasons depending on the deck but Grand Abolisher, basically uh, a two CMC silence on a stick. Um, Ranger Captain, it's a three CMC silence <laughs> on a stick. You know, so much worse. Except, it, you know, obviously Grand Abolisher is silence that you can, it's only for your turn when you're trying to combo. Ranger Captain can be used to silence your opponents, um, but there's the one-man differential. The fact that Ranger Captain isn't just, like, the, the difference between um, silence and abeyance, for instance. Uh, abeyance, for those who might not know, uh, is a two cmc for one in a white it's an instant uh target opponent uh can't cast instance sorceries like it just can't cast spells this turn or activate abilities i believe um and it cantrips so it's a in 1v1 it's kind of just better silence uh depending on the deck because you can basically time walk your opponent and draw a card uh in cdh silence is obviously the much superior card um because you're not just focusing down one opponent and you, you're not leaving your other two opponents free to interact with you um but ranger captain the fact that you can leverage it to basically silence each one of your opponents or prevent them from going off and then still have it on your turn is what uh gives it a significant advantage and we have a couple other cards here um that that can provide a similar effect so there's this category of cards um, and there's kind of a theme. Uh, a lot of these are basically all onboard tricks. Because um, there is... Uh, you could point out that if you just reveal the silence uh, you know, from your hand, and you're like, well, don't go off because I'm just going to cast it this silence. It operates very similarly to how a ranger captain it, operates. <laughs> it operates very similarly, um, with the one exception that once a ranger captain has resolved... It's really hard uh, to counter, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're not countering this ability. So an in-play ranger captain is a lot better than a revealed silence, because often people can you know counter their way through it. But uh, that aside, yeah, a revealed silence and, and a revealed you know onboard trick... Uh, function very similarly. So this next category of, of cards in this um, uh, onboard revealed tricks disruption is uh, 
the kind of I guess I'd call them like the four spike creatures. Yeah, there's so there's like uh, curse catcher, catcher kind of thing. mausoleum wanderer, judge's familiar, yeah. um, and patron wizard. And then, um, like, yeah, you also have like and then, void mage prodigy. And yeah, also world. void mage prodigy. So <laughs> curse catcher, patron wizard, void mage prodigy. These are cards I'd basically like. They're very very niche, probably only for like a zombie or something. Uh, um, hey, uh, people have put them in like yeah. sort of more like staxy um like things like double timna like either timna malcolm or like timna sakashima yeah, types I, no i like i like judges familiar and I mausoleum like, wanderer in those decks I, but I, the curse yeah, catcher yeah, patron yeah. wizard void mage those yeah, are probably yeah, yeah. Only, the, one, uh, the ones with flying yeah like, those ones flying have timna like, utility timna and, and, you're playing timna and rule of laws and blue yeah the ones with flying are like definitely so, consideration i i have been uh championing the one cmc flying ones because of the timna utility but the effect that they have and and it's because of the effect they have, which is you will consistently tax uh, everyone's ma- everyone all of your opponent's mana by one, just by having it in play, because no one is going to tap out for an ad nauseum with an in play curse catcher or judge's familiar or whatever. No one is going to do it because it's just a free free easy counter, right? So you will be consistently tapping, uh, or you consistently putting your opponents at a mana disadvantage. Um, doing that and patron wizard uh obviously needs a lot of wizards to kind of um take advantage of that you know at three a triple blue um it's four spikes it, it you tap an untap wizard counter target spell unless it's uh controller pays one generic mana um but if you have enough wizards it kind of cascades where the more wizards you have the more mana that your opponents are forced to uh, keep up in order to resolve their spells or even attempt to go for things. So it, you end up creating a significant uh, mana advantage um, for yourself compared to your opponents when you have these kinds of cards in play. Honestly, it's a little insulting that you left Urtai off this list. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, and and Void, Void Mage Prodigy, uh, not a four spike, but uh, an in-play counter spell. But just makes people second guess. It, I think Void Mage Prodigy is more similar to Ranger Captain. It has sort of where, a different... Well, it has a different um, sort of texture I guess Void Mage Prodigy and Glenelendra How it plays similar, out. Yeah. yeah, it's it's more of like a... Um, at that With the with hard counters... You, and this is sort of interesting because it's like... With the ones that there's a f- way out of the counter with like the four spikes or you can pay some amount of mana to not have your stuff countered, you're, you'll are you be willing to cast like whatever you want into it as long as you have that mana up. With stuff like Void Mage Prodigy and Glenelendra, it's a lot more of a game of chicken of, all right, well, I'm just going to cast my spells and if they feel like it's a good enough one to counter, then like they're going to do that. But I'm going to try to play like just under that line and resolve like enough good stuff that I'm still winning without like them countering any of it, which is like a very, that's a very different play pattern to have curse catcher and like patron wizard and stuff oh, uh, play out. Will you counter this Ristic study? <laughs> Are you, will you, will you counter this smothering tithe? Can I have this necropotence? No. All right. Well, we know where the line is now. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of bullying that can be done when you have a resolved, basically uncounterable counter spell in yeah, play. Yeah. 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 Um, also, one thing, one thing before, because uh, we've got a couple more cards we're going to discuss here, and I kind of want to see the last piece about Ranger Captain. One thing I like to, so I play Ranger Captain. Uh, you typically play it in decks uh, without access to blue, although I still think it's reasonable in something like a, a Razakat's kind of deck. Um, the one thing I really like to do with with Ranger Captain, um, 
if you're playing like lots of stacks pieces or hate bears is go find a sylvan safekeeper because uh, one thing people will try and do in order to force the ranger captain is throw a removal spell at it or a bounce spell or something um, in someone's end step and then force you to crack it but if you have a sylvan safekeeper that thing is only getting cracked on your own terms uh, and make it makes it much more likely to uh, still have it in play uh, come your next untap step um, yeah, uh, we've got uh, three yeah. more cards in this category. So we already Reed. sort of talked about one of them, um, which is but the the exact words that we have on these show notes are revealed force of will. Um, but it's basically equivalent to the revealed silence that we were talking about, where like any known interaction sort of has a similar impact on the game that like Ranger Captain or like specifically like Void Mage Prodigy do, because even though they're more counterable than like an activated ability. You still end up with, again, these pseudo-stack sort of games of chicken where <laughs> it's sort of funny because if it if they were a stacks if you were to transfer it over to a stacks effect, it would almost read like your opponents can't cast spells that are too good. <laughs> like they're allowed to cast any mediocre spell in their deck, but the first good spell that an opponent casts is countered. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the one thing, the one thing with the revealed counter spells in silence is there. It is kind of the the standard CDH math of uh, the person who's thinking about whether or not they want a combo is counting up the amount of counter spells and interaction protection they have in their hand, and then trying to guess how much you know their opponents have. And the force of will is kind of just you know a known quantity. Then it's like, well, I know there's this force of will, and he's holding up how much mana, and you know maybe he's got a deflecting swat or something. So it's really just throwing a piece of known information out there to hopefully um, represent something to dissuade them from going off. Whereas once you've resolved these other things, it's there's it, the amount of counter spells they have in their hand is, yeah. is meaningless. Um, we, I guess one of uh, we, we've got death, right? Shaman um, as a kind of, you know, single shot use grave hate, but this is, is often uh, enough to act as a deterrent to stop people from, yeah, for like Razakath or, or certain breach or lines breach or stuff or yeah, just yeah. a bunch of that kind of thing. Yeah, and and on that note, stop tapping your goddamn. Death I hate shaman. when. Well, actually, I love when people do it, but I hate when it's the other grave deck at the table that profits from it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and and things like Deathrite Shaman. Unlike what would might differentiate this from something like a a Graph Digger's Cage. We were, we were discussing a bit uh, pre-show. I think it was Morgan. You were saying like this is you basically count Deathrite Shaman as a stacks effect. But um, like, the difference yeah, is like like yeah. against certain certain combos. Yeah. It, like the the fact that it untaps on your turn and you can use it every turn um, means that like it's it's extremely in most cases I find it's practically a hard stacks effect. So uh, so the, obviously like if you have yeah. an instant speed interaction you can sometimes like get around it yeah the, the, and there's also like it's a softer stacks effect for like breach combos than it is for um than it is for something like a reanimation uh effect um but i guess i, I was specifically thinking in the context of reanimator that yeah. death Red shaman is is practically a hard stacks piece yeah the, di the uh, difference outside would of be. very i think the reason why it, it acts as a pseudo, pseudo stacks piece is because it is only a single shot it, it's it has the same kind of well, effect yeah. with ranger yeah, captain can... where if you're against three reanimator <laughs> opponents no one's gonna bin 
their Razakath and expose it to a Deathrite Shaman and try and reanimate, so then you can often make it around a turn cycle without um, having to, you know, activate the... or without being forced to activate the Deathrite yeah, Shaman. You can, I guess you it's can also overload... a pseudo piece because people tap it to do, like, unimportant stuff a lot. <laughs> you can you can overload a Deathrite Shaman, you can't overload a Grafter's Cage. You can cast as many reanimation spells as you want into a Grafter's Cage and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the, the, I was saying, Grafter's Cage versus Deathrite Shaman is... Um, people will not launch an Entomb into a Deathrite Shaman, whereas people will launch an Entomb into a Grafter's Cage. With the kind of, you know, yeah. let, let me use yeah. my, let me be mana efficient now and then I can uh, remove it and reanimate it later with some counter backup, whereas Deathrite Shaman is like, nope. <laughs> Yeah, I guess, like, kind of the reason I think that it's it's a hard stacks piece in that context is also, like, if you compare it, if you, say, cast, you cast Entomb and then you cast Reanimate, um, if you, like, if you, ca if you do that into a Deathrite Shaman, it's not just that you're out, like, the Reanimate, you're also out the Entomb or, like, whatever the Entomb found, right? As opposed to, like, something like Ranger Captain, where essentially you can try and commit one card to deal with it. Like, you commit one card to force them to crack it, and then you still have, like, the other important card that you that you are trying to, like, have work properly. Um, whereas with Deathrite Shaman, like, not only do you... Does it not work, and then you can just try again later. Like, oh, they, my reanimate didn't work, but it's fine, I can animate dead the Razaketh next turn. It's like, no, the Razaketh is gone. Yeah. So now you have to find something else and another way to reanimate it. Uh, and then the last card we have in this category is a uh, funny one. Hey, man. Uh, Aetherflux Reservoir. Uh, Reed, you want to... Well, no, no, no. Specifically Aetherflux Reservoir with more than 50 life, but less than 150 life. <laughs> yeah, all, all um, you need is like a 60... Six, sitting at 60 life with Reservoir and no one can go for a win. Um... <laughs> Theoretically, yes. <laughs> really, uh, yeah, okay. There is a problem with that, which is a uh, deflecting spot. <laughs> oh, true, true. Yeah. Or uh, also, if, if people are able to go off on top of that yeah, activation. I've, yeah. I've definitely also won through somebody having a Nathan bar with more than 50 life with Flash Era. <laughs> when it's just like, yeah, yeah I'm going to present this. I'm going to cast this. Uh, I think it was like cast a Grand Abolisher in response, shoot me in response, Flash. Um, so definitely not a <laughs> completely hard stacks piece, but definitely it, up Reflex Reservoir really is the best counter spell, like though, pseudo stacks right. piece. Yeah. And on episode fifty-two of Flash was a dumb card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. Okay, moving on. We've got this. Uh, uh I guess this, this next category. Uh, we've got the card Survival of the Fittest. Um, and Yisan here. Um, and I, I guess. There, I guess Ranger Captain could reasonably fit into this category as well. Uh, where I would say that the, the theme that ties these cards together is that they threaten interaction, um, which then you're not really forced to use, and then you can come around to your turn, and then you can use it for um, whatever advantage you want, right? So with Yisan, um, a big thing that's... Uh, well, what makes Yisan, I think, even kind of playable is that you can threaten um, your... On each open verse, the idea that you can threaten a piece of interaction that would stop your opponents from winning, which would then, if they're aware of what's in Yisan, um, 
And usually, as a Yassan pilot, uh, I would like to remind my opponents and be like, Hey man, listen, don't go off, otherwise I'm going to be forced to verse now and like stop <laughs> you in your tracks. Trying to intimidate them. <laughs> basically. Because uh, otherwise, if you if you are forced to use your Yassan to go find your interactive piece, you're not actively progressing your own game plan. Um, but the fact that you can get an interactive piece at instant speed, stacks or interaction, like Rex Age or something, uh, what have you, the fact that you can get that instant speed dissuades your opponents from, from comboing into it, which then means come the end step, uh, before your turn you're going to untap, you can Yassan for some proactive piece uh, that furthers your own game plan. Um, and that's the strength of, of something like Yassan. Uh, we talked about Ranger Captain going around untapping with a silence. Survival of Fittest, similarly, you're not being forced to, uh, you know, pitch your whole hand to just find um, reactive uh, like stacks pieces. Hall Breacher or Op Agent or whatever. I mean, the thing with, with saying that with Survival is that, you know, if you're getting a Hall Breacher or Opposition Agent, you can't really complain all that much. No, but, but it's uh, like there are if you only have a single creature yeah. and you're, you're trying to do like a Razaketh, uh, go find Razaketh, find Loyal Retainers or Spellseeker or something, um, you'd rather not have to pitch that creature. Uh, yeah, so that's the advantage I mean, that of being those. Said, the, the advantage of survival in that situation is with an extra green, you can just like cycle through the Razaketh on the way to the stacks piece, and then on your turn, like if you hit any yeah. creature, just find the reading of it, which is sort um, of disgusting. That's true. Uh, and, and the one thing I'd give advice to people, like I just said, is if you're really trying to leverage these uh, some of these stacks pieces and make the most of them, you really want to use uh, politics to really reinforce and try and dissuade people from comboing into them. The nice. ultimate way to play around a ranger captain, because if you, when you untap with a ranger, when an opponent untaps with a ranger captain of Eos, it's like having a grand abolisher play. I mean, not quite the same, but, you know, functionally very similar. You don't want that. You know, ranger, uh, grand abolisher is like a, you know, like very much counter on site or remove threat or like, you know, it's a red alert, everyone. Do not let him untap with this card in play. Ranger Captain should be very similar, and so you definitely want this thing to be gone by the time your opponent is untapping. So sometimes you will be forced to play into it, and uh, that's that's kind of how you have to how you have to do it, how you have to approach it. But you know, if you're on the side of the player playing the Yassan, Ranger Captain, whatever, yeah, try and dissuade your opponents from from doing that. Um, cool. You guys have anything to say on these? No, I mean, if it, I feel like they're pretty self-explanatory. Just, like, holding up potential interaction. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, and with with lesser-known decks, um, you know, Ranger Captain's obviously in play, but Survival, Yassan, you have to let people know what you could find to stop them, potentially. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Urza plus Trinisphere, and uh, this was Reeds, I believe, right? Yes, this is a fun one, <laughs> because... It's, like, the funny thing about this is that Trinisphere on its own is just a stacks piece. <laughs> like, it's, it's, like, it's just, yeah, everything costs three great. This is, like, the definition of a stacks piece. But with an Urza in play on the side of the Trinisphere player, it be, sort of becomes the pseudo-stacks piece where, with a, with a Trinisphere in play, you might just be able to win through Trinisphere and just be like, all right, well, I just, like, have six mana. I'm going to do my Oracle Consult thing through this Trinisphere and just win the game. And, like, it also makes other people, like, it makes it difficult to interact with me and makes it hard for other people to hold on mana and all this stuff. But with an Urza in play, you can be like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, spend the six mana to go for my Oracle plus Consult. 
and then Urza turns off the Trinisphere, and suddenly nobody else has restrictions on their on their interaction, and you're just like out six mana for a three mana combo. So it just stops you from like attempt. Like it makes it a lot harder for you attempt to, for you to attempt wins. Then yeah, if there was just it, a Trinisphere in play. It <laughs> yeah. it adds it adds more to the yeah it's. I, I guess Trinisphere is stacks, but they're not being a Trinisphere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It, the fact, I guess, I guess the thing is the disruptive elements of Trinisphere are, um, are, are, are greater than, is greater than just this Trinisphere itself, self when combined with Urza, which might not seem counter, uh, which might seem counterintuitive because, you know, Urza player is kind of just doing him. How does imagine just turning it off for himself? Better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly kind of strange but yeah that makes sense um like we we're saying these are all kind of like on a spectrum i'd say the trinosphere plus urza's closer to just hard stacks whereas oh, something yeah, like no, revealed 100%. force of will is at the end the, the bottom end of pseudo stacks and lots of the stuff's in the middle uh next up we have a card that i've been playing with a lot recently which is sigil tracer uh we kind of weren't sure which category to put this in so it was kind of in its own category <sighs> Morgan, do you want to talk a bit about Sigil Tracer? Or... Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I think the reason that like it, it sort of fits into two different categories is because there's two different things that Sigil Tracer can do. Um, one of the things we were talking about was, uh, like when deciding sort of how to classify these, was uncertainty, right? And so um, in, in one way, Sigil Tracer can have a lot of uncertainty, and that's when you use it to double up on interaction, right? Like you go for your combo, someone casts a counterspell... And then the Sigil Tracer player, you know, you try and counter it, and then the Sigil Tracer player just copies it over top, and then, like, now you have to counter that copy too. Um, so that's, like, obviously uncertain, because you don't know what interaction is or isn't forthcoming from your opponents. Um, but the other effect that Sigil Tracer has is that it just makes it, like, really hard to cast good instants or sorceries. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you cast a Demonic Tutor, and the Sigil Tracer player goes, yes, please. Like, or, you know, even more sort of, like, extreme, you know, you want to cast, like, Ad Nauseam or, like, Peer into the Abyss. Like, you, you just can't into an open Sigil Tracer, right? Like, because there's not only are they going to get a copy, theirs is going to resolve first. Um, it can definitely go very, very badly for you. Um, and so, in some ways, it's more like, a, it's like a Ranger Captain, but only for, like, a specific set of spells, um, and then also kind of like a also, Void Mage Prodigy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like um, one that's in the next category, but I think also like fits with this. It's also sometimes like a Vexing Cheshire, where yeah, where like someone tries to counter your thing, you counter back, and then someone with a Vexing Cheshire is like, I'll just make the counter spell uncounterable. Um, and Shinja Tracer can have sort of a similar effect. Okay, speaking of Vexing Cheshire, uh, this is our. Oh yeah, and then last thing is, Sigil Tracer also has the benefit of being a uh, a combo, a combo. Yeah, a, you know, a, a nice concept on things legs. that untap and and mana, or also just like you can use it on your own demonic tutor as well. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I had a or use it on your own console tracer for Oracle console. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So so our next our next category of cards uh, really focuses on the unknown, which is something uh, Morgan talked about with Sigil Tracer, kind of dipping in stone to this category as well. Uh, so here we have Vexing Shusher, Counterbalance, <laughs> just having open mana, 
Uh, I feel like it's open mana and cards in hand. <laughs> cards in hand, and not hey, specifically man, blue mana, usually. Yeah. Um, Spoofy. And then uh, we'll, we'll cover these these last two sections. Uh, we've got we've got one one U open in flash meta, which you know, thank God we don't have to consider anymore. And then we've got uh, scrying, discarding, passing on really strong cards, uh, which we'll probably save for last. But yeah, so vexing Cheshire, counterbalance, open mana. Um, Morgan talked about Vexing Shusher, uh, already. The idea being, people are less likely to go into, or combo into a Vexing Shusher on the assumption that whatever they're trying to do is going to be stopped with an uncounterable counterspell. So, kind of like an in-play Void Mage Prodigy, um, not likely to combo into that, except that the player with the Vexing Shusher does not need to be the person who's interacting, which adds just so much, uh, so much to the, to the consideration. I mean, it's, you're also, it's, like, sort of, yeah. in a way, this sort of, like, parallels Urza plus Trinosphere too, <laughs> where it's, like, it just makes it easier for interaction to happen with any given win attempt, basically. Yeah, Vexing Shusher really shifts the game into your control, where you're the person who gets to decide, um, what is resolving and what's not a lot of the time. Uh, yeah. Very, very strong card. Um, I, you know, we were talking about Sigil Tracer. I had a game, um, uh, Matt and I were playing with a uh, friend of the show, Keegan, in like this, we're doing some testing with like ultra grindy Thrasios Timna kind of mirrors. Um, and uh, we were playing with a fourth who happened to be on Vexing Shisher in uh, like a Thrasios Bruce deck. Uh, that I helped him make, and there was, I had Sigil Tracer, um, I ended up trying to go for, like, an overloaded Cyclonic Rift. Uh, my board was pretty insane. I think Matt tries to overload a Cyclonic Rift back, and there's a Vexing Treasure in play with two uh, untapped mana. And the fight between the Sigil Tracer, like, copying um, the my Cyclonic Rift on top of, because I the whole point of, I, I was trying to counter Matt's Cyclonic Rift, um, but you have to, like, you know, get through the Vexing Treasure activations. So when he goes to activate to make the sh the uh, Cyclonic Rift uncounterable, then I have to produce interaction on top of that. So Sigil Tracer helping to, um, you know, get additional cards or, or um, things to help remove the Shusher on top of that. And lots of lots of interesting uh, counterplay between uh, these two cards. Uh, and they're very... They, they tend... Those were the two cards that were kind of dominating... The, the game once they came into play and it was sufficiently late enough. Um, but yeah, uh, next up we have Counterbalance and Open Mana. So Counterbalance is one that I've been a, um, I, I've been I've been putting in, in a lot of my decks uh, since back when I was playing, uh, testing with it first in like a Shimmerzer. Uh, usually I'd only put it into a deck when you have like a combined uh, split. Uh, a combined total between uh, the number of one drops and two drops in your deck, you know, above 45, ideally above 50, uh, where the, the idea being half the time uh, you are shutting off, you know, one of the two most important CMCs uh, in CDH and asymmetrically. Um, but one thing that I think is crucial when playing Counterbalance unless you have some kind of uh, repeatable way to refresh the top card of your library is maximizing the uncertainty factor. 
Oh yeah, hundred percent. Where your opponents are not, no one. If you let's say you're you're player A and player B, you've got a counterbalance in play. Player B's turn untaps. You have not revealed the top card of your library. It's not likely your opponent is just going to go. Okay, I'm going to cast Thassa's Oracle into this counterbalance. I mean, right. some people might, yeah. but... <laughs> Oracle consult's an especially rough yeah. one, because, yeah. like, <laughs> one and two. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, like, I, I, you know, people often, they, like, check with counterbalance. It's always interesting to see, like, you, know, you go, like, all right, I'll cast, like, Birds of Paradise. And, like, some people are just like, all right, flip the top. And some people are, like, some people will be like, I'm not flipping the top. Like, I, you know, I value you guys not knowing what's on top of my library more than I value, like, you not having a Birds of Paradise. Yeah, yeah I think that's, for for me, that's the key aspect of Counterbalance. Um, and something that really takes it from what I would say is basically, I wouldn't say unplayable, but, like, not not very good to being playable. Uh, which is maximizing that uncertainty. Do not flip for... Your your opponents are going to try and test, uh, test your Counterbalance to, to see what the CMC is at. Be very reluctant on on flipping it um counterbalance is also uh gets a lot better when you can reset the top of your library so uh, i was testing it in um the kind of thrasios timna grindfest where thrasios can't actually set up the top of your library with uh his scry and draw but you can use it to clear the top of your library and get a fresh counterbalance which can be useful sometimes and, and um, i mean i yeah. think the poster child for that is obviously elsha right where you can, <laughs> yeah. like most of your deck you can cast off your library yeah. off the top of your library at instant speed yeah i liked it a lot in in Zer if my life total got too low to uh win with necropotence just having necro in play with a counterbalance just <laughs> free resets all the time pretty great um top obviously uh great with counterbalance also it turns your uh top deck tutors and brainstorm into counter spells which is pretty dope one thing you need to consider with counterbalance is uh while it's basically an uncounterable counterspell when you do get to uh, flip it, um, and, and unlike something like a, a Chalice of the Void, which if you can play Chalice of the Void, you know, if you can support it, which, you know, very few decks can, but the decks that can, that card is amazing. That doesn't actually eat any of the resources from your opponents. It just stops them from being able to do things. Counterbalance, when they eventually have to test into it, you do get to deny them um, some cards. Which is nice, but yeah, one thing you need to be cautious about with counterbalance is um, well, counter spells don't stop it. Um, you know, deflecting SWAT, that kind of thing doesn't stop it. What will stop it is um, uh, Veil of Summer. <laughs> Not Autumn's Veil, notably, but Veil of Summer, because Autumn's Veil says your spells can't be countered by um, uh, blue or black spells. Does this uh, can't be targeted? No, your spells can't be countered by blue or black spells. No, but then, and your permanents can't be the target of uh, blue or black spells. Well, I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah. We can look. It, it, yeah, it does, Creature, does. Creatures you control. Creatures. You yeah, creatures. Control. Control. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, autumn's veil. Uh, sorry, veil of summer just says your spells can't be countered. Yeah. Uh, then has the blue. You and permanents you control have, or creatures you control have, hexproof from blue or black until end of turn. But yeah, so veil of summer. Uh, the main out to counterbalance or a shusher whatever other granting and counterability um yep uh then next we have open mana um reed are you who is it between reed and, and morgan which one of you is the bigger sandbag oh 100 percent me reed 
What? So then, Reed, why don't you talk about the value of uh, of open mana and, and using politics to kind of make the most of your uh, counter spells without having to use them? Sure. I mean, so, okay. So, realistically, open mana really matters. <laughs> so, the name of the game with making open mana a threat is plausible deniability. Um which is the concept that you're holding open mana for some other reason than you having interaction. Um, I.e., you have a Thrasios that you need to activate and you're holding up exactly four mana. Or, I don't, like, you're activating some other thing. Or you, like, are going to cast a Eladom race call for two mana. Or something like that. <laughs> something that makes sense with the mana that you have. Um, and then using that and leveraging that fact to basically threaten to the other people at the table that you don't have interaction sometimes like when you think other people have interaction or alternatively threatening that you do have interaction when you don't and you don't think that other people at the table have interaction um, and then using that to exert pressure on people to not cast their game winning spells and then be able to use that mana productively and progress in your game plan and other facets or sometimes it can be um one thing I've done with when playing Baral recently is basically saying to my opponents, you're not going to win the counter war. I will win the counter war, but we will both expend all of our counter spells stopping, you know, me and it will end with you getting stopped by me and then player, you know, B or C or whatever is going to win. Yeah. So, so don't do it. It's a hard. That's, <laughs> and then that result is like, well, great. Take. Neither of us have to use our counter spells. It's a hard and then, line to take at yeah. some points. Um, that definitely works, but there, the issue with taking that hard of a stance that I've found a lot of, like, 100% of the time is that a lot of the time people will either check you immediately or say, okay, show me what you got. <laughs> and, like, prove to me that you can't stop me this turn or else I'm still going for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it might it might help uh, the case of it when you're playing something like Baral. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. I, has I a reputation it's, it's and... Definitely, yeah. It's definitely a harder... Thing to it's definitely a harder stance to take when you're on like when you're on something like Thrasius Timna and then like you do it's have, like your deck has like seven counter spells total or like or yeah, okay. when you do have something to do with your mana because Brawl usually doesn't have anything to do with his mana except just fuck you for trying to cast a spell. <laughs> um, I want to loot. <laughs> let me let me loot. So yeah. so it's like it's a lot more threatening when Brawl, which is the deck that has like nothing to gain from holding open mana except for countering your stuff, holds up mana versus like the Thrasios player holding up mana who obviously has a Thrasios activation to gain. Yeah. So, um, and then we've got our last two, which was, yeah, uh, one and a U in Flash Meta, uh, which I think we've covered to death on the show, but if anyone wants to say some more on that, then, you know, go ahead. Nope. Moving on. Yep. <laughs> cool. And then this last one, which, uh, which one of you put this one? Maybe it was, oh, I, mean, I didn't Matt. put it, maybe yeah. it was Matt. Um, was definitely, it Matt? Definitely a okay. thing, which is scrying, discarding, or passing on really strong cards, um, alternatively tutoring the wrong target or like the quote-unquote wrong card um off of like a revealed tutor it like indicating that you already yeah, have something always, else yeah that's always always like an interesting uh meta of like revealed information um i, I mean i feel like the best analogy of that is like in 1v1 formats you know when you you get jace fate sealed yeah. And then you draw something really good, and you're like, they leave it on top. You draw something really good. You're just like, well, I guess this isn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, there's, yeah, there's some effects that, with that. That like, line, sorry, like, so I guess, just that line makes me laugh so much, which is the, somebody activates Jay's targeting you, they look at your card, they're like, yeah, you can have it, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, god damn yeah. it. Yeah, like, um, you know, like you cast, I mean, there's not as much of it in, uh, in EDH, but like, you know, you cast like some spell that makes you like loot or discard cards, you know, like, like you cast a frantic search and then you pitch like, you know, you pitch like time twister or like you discard it, you discard like time twister. I mean, I guess discarding time twister to hand size, like makes a certain amount you, like, of sense. You like discard like Hall Force of will pitching time twister. Like, you, yeah, yeah. You discard like some really strong card to hand size and then your opponents are just like, well, what or like, or like, or like, you, like, or like, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, I think the other day, I, I force of willed pitching Gilded Drake into a board full of like really strong creatures, and I mean, it pained me to do it, and I wasn't sure if it was the complete right call, but I think I ended up winning that game, and it was like, damn, what, what the heck else? What other blue cards does he have in his hand? It also, yeah, like, yeah. also, yeah, like Chrome Mox imprinting, just going to hand size. Um, one of the ones that happened recently to me was playing Cole. I e-tutored for a Mana Crypt, <laughs> and everybody on the table was immediately on high alert because that deck, like, only e-tutors for Skull Clamp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess to put a bow on uh, this mini-topic, uh, be cautious in, or... Be aware on on how you're evaluating cards that, you know, if a card could present this sort of pseudo-stacks effect, um, you might want to evaluate it higher. It's not just, you know, Patron Wizard isn't just a, uh, a, a four spike on a stick. Uh, you can get, you know, multiple cards or, or mul a stronger effect out of it than you might think in the uh, four-player free-for-all setting. Um, and yeah, maybe... Uh, if you can if you can leverage more uh, pseudo stacks effects that you know stop your opponents and then do something really strong for you, uh, yeah maybe maybe uh, do some of that. Uh, yeah, and and well, it's nice if your opponents can't execute their game plan. It's often good enough if they don't want. To. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Buy a Ranger Captain of BS. Okay, <laughs> uh, on to uh, on to gut check. Everyone's favorite segment. Gut check! Gut check. Gut check. Uh, I've got... Uh, I wouldn't say it's a spicy one. It's it's just it's just a one uh, for us this week. <laughs> <laughs> of all the gut checks, it's definitely one of them. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, question is, what card or cards... Um, have you always wanted slash hold a special place in your heart? So like for many players, this might be something like a piece of power nine or like, you know, a signed copy of something from a particular artist or like some really pimped out version of a card. Um, what, what is that for you? And you know, if, if you guys want, I can, I can start first. Um, give you guys some time to think for me. Ever since starting to play Magic and, and kind of like learning about Legacy and seeing the card Force of Will, I've kind of always just wanted to have a playset of Force of Wills. That's just always been like just so, so cool to me. I mean, I've got, I've got more, uh, like I've, got, I've got some cards that are like more expensive than Force of Wills. And it's like, I guess I really, I could sell a card and buy. It's not like there's anything 
super stopping me from owning a playset. It's just like right now I have like no real reason to own a playset of Force of Wills. But I don't know, man. There's something about, you know, playset of Force of Wills in like a legacy deck or something that's just so cool to me ever since I started playing. Um, I wouldn't say like always I've wanted this card, but um I've for a, well I guess since I it's like since it was revealed slash since it came out I've really really wanted at least one but like preferably to be able to play a playset even though they were just Pringle immediately um a playset or a card of Invocation Days um just because that card like the art on that card is just fantastic um and I think it's like one of the coolest looking cards um out there. I was I was always I was considering getting a playmat as sort of the very cheap version of owning one of them. <laughs> nice. Morgan. Um I, I I guess it's Ugin. Like I don't know, I just uh, and like to a certain extent also um like Nicol Bolas Planeswalker. I really like the design of this card actually just costs a million mana, but basically ends the game on the spot. And, uh, you know, Ugin was really well done. We'd known he was a part of the story for a really long time. And then the card representation, you know, was a good callback. His plus is Ghostfire. Um, his minus is the opposite of Nicol Bolas's. And it was just like a good balance of being really powerful capturing the flavor but also i think being you know ultimately balanced i don't think it really wrecked anything um and i've always wanted to own one but it's always been you know more expensive than i wanted to just pick up without having a specific place to put it and i just never really had a reason so i've never gotten around to buying it but uh, you don't own a single ugin no Oh, I thought, uh, I I thought he was Ugin. like, you're like, oh, I want like a place. I was like, nope, dang. No, I do not. Uh, sorry, like I own an Ugin the Ineffable, but not an Ugin yeah. Spirit Dragon. Dude, now's the time to buy Ugin, right? It just got reprinted. It's the I mean, cheapest it's, it's ever been. Like, it's like 20 bucks. It was like a few months ago, unfortunately. But Oh, is it? Has yeah. it gone back up it's again? It's above 30 now. Damn. Damn. I need to pick up uh, a copy, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that wraps up for Gut Check. Uh, and on to listener questions. We have a listener question uh, coming to us from Was Here. Uh, Was Here asks, After a tournament, how do you guys evaluate the performance of your deck and your plays? Also, how do you improve off of these? Uh, so the answer from Morgan is he doesn't. He just wins stuff and then just like sort of brings the same list to the next tournament and does it again. <laughs> yeah, can you true. improve I perfection? I bring different lists. <laughs> it... it it does, you know, when when the list doesn't seem to impact my results, it does make it hard to evaluate. Um, I mean, quite honestly, it's sort of just like, um, for me, I don't know. It might be different for you guys, but for me, specifically looking at um, like tournament results, it's just looking at games that I've lost and seeing if I could have impacted them in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's sort of it's just a bit harder to look at one games and see how you could have improved a lot of the time. Um, so I usually don't really bother if there's a sufficient number of like lost games or like games with specific misplays in them um that i can like go back and rectify or make sure that i have in mind for improvements in the future um and then for specific lists it's really more just about like um 
quite honestly, um, I'd like to say that I do a lot of like heavy iteration after tournaments, but typically a lot of the time when I bring a list to a tournament, it's because I'm like super confident in how the list performs and I've already done like 99.9% of the legwork and getting it to where I want it to be. Um, so I'm typically very, very satisfied with how, uh, with like a list that I brought to a tournament just because like I've already put in all the work to make sure it is that way once I bring it. Yeah, um, I, I think that that's good. like, I think it's important to like emphasize that that's appropriate. Like I think that generally, you know, like obviously, you know, based on your results of the tournament, you can draw some conclusions. Um, you know, my Tazri, uh, Zerda, Meme Brew, I didn't put life death in. Um, I have found that cards like pretty unnecessary in like regular Razakats, uh, because usually if I'm doing survival stuff, I get Spellseeker, but then this time I was getting loyal retainers, so you have one less body. And anyways, just not having life death, like it cost me a game and it like almost cost me another game. Um, and so like, that was that was like sort of an obvious thing but that was also a list that i'd put together like very shortly before the tournament i don't think you want to put yourself in a position where you are making substantial changes to your deck after your tournament unless you made like hard medicals that were wildly wrong um it, you like that sort of legwork is stuff you want to be doing before the tournament and like unless you you know again unless you had like incredibly abnormal results um I like you generally don't want to make changes based on that because like there's there's so much variance that yeah. like you can't just you know oh I you know I ran into the weird stacks matchup and like yeah it turns out that you know when they're playing you know like I thought my deck was like pretty stacks resilient but you know when they're playing ward of bones like I guess I don't have like I can't yeah. do much when you're making or, like three like, copies of Archon of, of Amiria, like sure, yeah, <laughs> or like, Archon Valor's Reach, like, like yeah, great, <laughs> like yeah. I can't. Um, so so like I yeah, I think really looking after a turn, looking after a tournament is definitely a great time to analyze like your play, mm -hmm. look for mistakes you made, and you can definitely find those in games that you won. Um, as an example, oh yeah, sorry, in the final. Me, me saying I don't do that wasn't and <laughs> was me saying to do that to follow that. I, I was just saying for in like for me, I find that it's a lot easier to find misplays in lost games. Um, if you're looking to become an, a oh, much better yeah. player, absolutely analyze every game in a tournament. Um, it's definitely the much more productive yeah. But uh, thing to I do. mean, I I do think it's I do think it's definitely appropriate to focus on lost games. Yeah. But like you know just. Like take a look at everything, you know. They're in the finals of uh, of Marchesa. I like, I was looking for a line I could guild a drink at Kodama and then try and win through, uh, through like a um, deafening silence, and or or I could just guild a Drake a um, a hull breacher and go for a twister. And like I was going like, is there, is there a line here? I'm pretty sure there's a line. And like I played my land. And then immediately went like, that was so stupid. If I'm going to Gilded Drake at Kodama, I definitely should have saved this land drop. Um, to, you know, to get an extra trigger to put in, like, what I... The line I wound up find, finding, I would have been putting in a Lion's Eye Diamond. Which is uh, a pretty good one when you have Razaketh and there's a Deafening Silence out. It's, it's not a bad one to, like, put in for free. But, yeah, focusing on the games you lost because 
they're the ones where doing things differently or having things differently is like more likely to have changed the outcome um and you know did you encounter certain things that you felt you didn't have answers for or that you were particularly soft to um is is a good thing to like at least take a look at uh especially if you're going to be playing tournaments in that meta again um but i think you know for a one-off tournament you you definitely don't want to be um making a whole bunch of changes in response to what is ultimately going to be like a biased and small sample of games um for me uh i don't play in or it's been a while since i've played in any like cdh tournament but uh in my experience playing in like hearthstone tournaments and also recently in like the uh mythic qualifier on arena i was i would say the most important time or, or the best time to evaluate your plays is immediately after the game uh do just a quick uh post-mortem on each game maybe even if you win on could i have done something better did i did i miss out or if there was a play um if there was a play where I was like 50-50 between doing something, um, was that the right play in retrospect? Uh, that's usually pretty good. It helps when you're, uh, it helps for future when you're trying to do plays to, you know, make sure that you're actually able to consider all of the lines and then choose the best one. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of what separates like a, a good player from a great player is, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess there's, it's a two-parter. One is, the ability to see all the options and then the ability to, to make the correct option, right? I mean, if you're, you know, when I'm, when I'm playing chess, I do definitely, I definitely do not see all the same possible moves that like a, a higher level player or like a grandmaster does. Um, even if I'm able to select the best move out of the uh, moves that I am able to see, which I often still am not able to do. <laughs> but in, in magic, uh, maybe I'm a bit better at that. Um, and then the, the second part would be, um, how do you improve off of these? Um, one thing I, I know I did a, uh, in the mythic qualifier, I made a play mistake. Basically I had been setting up something with, a whatever the, the freaking call time IC manipulator is. Cause the format was call time sealed, which was brutal, but, uh, they're the, the call time IC manipulator. I was basically tapping down a lethal attacker every turn. And I was manually setting the stop in pre-combat every time. And I was just about to uh, secure the win and, and stabilize. And then um, I basically just okayed through the uh, the pre at the beginning of combat step and did not tap down a lethal attacker. And then I died. And so it's, I've been doing, it'd been a long, like it was going to go this just for like, this game was going to, he was going to deck out on his next turn. Like, it was a long, grindy match. So the, the takeaway for me was, you know, obviously I'd slipped up, but I'd slipped up after a long, um, long drawn-out game where I thought I had it in the bag. And, you know, the game's not over till it's over. Do not get relaxed. You know, stay on top of your shit until the, you know, the game is 100% done. Um, and I often, in games, if I remember my mistakes i will try like in games like after the fact i will try and consciously um think about the action as i'm doing it to kind of reinforce good habits uh so that in future these kinds of things are are automatic and and 
you know, I'm not, I'm using less brain juice. Yeah. I, I think also like one thing, you know, talking about like things that didn't work out, you know, you said like when you had options analyzing, if you made the right play, I do think it's like important, um, not to be entirely outcome focused. Cause I think people fall into that trap. Like, Oh, I did X instead of Y and I, and it like, it didn't work out. Not even like I lost the game eventually, but just like it didn't work That's out in point. that specific instance. That doesn't necessarily mean it was the wrong play, right? Like, all of every action you take is like a probability calculation and you can make the right probability calculation and just be in the case where you get the unlikely result. Yeah. Uh, like sometimes it's like at Marches on, uh, on last on the weekend. Right. Yeah. It's like, I think for, for me, it's more like, um, I was more thinking like arena where it's like, okay, I'm going to attack for, um, you know, it's like, oh, I knew, I knew that I could have played around, uh, settle the wreckage if I had wanted to, right? And I, and I didn't, or something like that, right? Or, um, do I play around settle the wreckage, or do I play around, um, you know, some single target removal spell? And then in in hindsight, you know, you look back and it's like, well, um, they had the single target removal spell and decided to play around settle the wreckage, but then you know, in your post mortem analysis, you're like, well, actually, you know, in game one. You know, there's only, you know, two Settle the Wreckages in their deck, um, whereas there's, you know, four copies Eight of the single, single target, target removal spell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you, you should have gone, the proper play was to play around the single target removal or uh, that's what But yeah, it's, it's like the, the core learning here is that like not everything, like you can't write off everything that you did in a winning game as correct just because it worked out. And then you also, or like not even in a winning, but like in a winning situation um, or in a positive situation as like the right choices because it worked out and you also shouldn't write off everything that happened in a bad situation as um like something that was incorrect just because it didn't work out um which is actually the bigger one in my opinion a lot of the time um is that like people will introduce changes to their gameplay because uh, a play went wrong when it was not expected to go wrong and it was like statistically the correct decision um or the like the the you still made the correct play it just didn't turn out well um and it's sort of like it's good to be able to recognize those um those situations and just reaffirm that like yeah i would still make this play again um even though it didn't go my way this time is it is it star trek with the it you is could, possible yeah, to commit no, no errors and yet still yeah. lose <laughs> Yeah, that's the. Um, oh, okay. I, I'm not a. I'm not a Trekkie. There are no mistakes. It's the. What is it? The. Um, oh, it's the simulation where you're. Uh, the holodeck. The Kobayashi. The Kobayashi Mary. Kobayashi yeah, Mary. there you go. Wow. Okay. Well, after that Star Trek reference, uh, <laughs> that about wraps it up for this episode. If you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email into the north podcast at gmail.com or on our discord server the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode an extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us towards working <laughs> and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast if you too would like to become a patron we are at patreon.com slash into north podcast uh, another way you can support us is via our tcg player affiliate link so anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast slash YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. 
Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music. To Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo and to our video editor Manta Ray Hat. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya.